Arthur Machen once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. following account, titled New Landing and Creature Reports, was written by John Keel and appeared in the Flying Saucer Review for November-December 1966. It describes the landing of a UFO and subsequent sighting of a so-called monster that occurred in Erie, Pennsylvania that July. The last few days of July 1966 were marked by a number of reports of strange objects and lights in the skies above Erie and surrounding districts. At Presque Isle on the evening of July 31st, the little wave culminated in a UFO landing and creature report with unusual features. Presque Isle is a hook-shaped peninsula encompassing Erie Harbor on Lake Erie. It is a state park and recreation area well-patrolled, and kept spotlessly clean and well-tended. At the far end of the hook, there is a Coast Guard station, which is equipped with radio transmitters. The small, modern administration building houses the police dispatcher's 15-watt transmitter and is about a half a mile from the alleged landing site and 300 yards from the position of the witnesses at the time of the sighting. Several people work in the administration building during the day. At night, there is usually only one man, the police dispatcher, in the building, transmitting orders to two patrolmen. There are a number of telephone lines to the building, and outside phone booths are situated at convenient locations around the peninsula. The park's 11 beaches close at sundown. The entrance to the park itself is closed by gates at midnight. On the night in question, patrolman Paul Wilson, a moonlighting schoolteacher, was acting as a dispatcher. Patrolman Ralph E. Clark and Robert Loeb Jr. were on duty. The witnesses, four adults and two small children, girls aged two years and six months old, arrived in the park about 8 p.m. for a picnic. They were Betty Jean Clem, 16, of Jamestown, New York, Douglas J. Tibbetts, 18, of Greenhurst, New York, Anita Hafley, 22, mother of the two children of Jamestown, and Gerald LaBelle, 26, of Jamestown. They held their picnic on beach number 6 at a picnic table situated under trees at the edge of the wooded area facing the beach. Apparently, they drove their car too close to the table and it sank into the sand and became stuck. Gerald LaBelle left the, left the area to find help. Shortly afterward, Patrolman Clark and Loeb arrived on a routine check of the beaches, and Tibbetts assured them that everything was all right. They left. The picnickers packed up and sat in the car to await LaBelle's return. The beaches were now deserted, and the air was chilly. The sky was clear with a full moon and many stars. Tibbetts and Betty Jean, his girlfriend, sat in the front seat of the car. Mrs. Hayfley sat in the back with her two children, who were falling asleep. The car was stuck in the U-shaped section of trees and brush. 
with some large bushes about 12 feet high directly in front, and other trees and bushes on both sides. Tibbets and Betty Jean were looking at the stars through the windshield, when one large, especially bright star caught their attention. They began watching it sometime between 9.30 and 10 p.m. As they observed it, it seemed to grow larger and head directly for them. As it loomed nearer, they could see that it was a brilliant white light with some kind of definite form. It dropped straight down for Beach 7 directly in front of them, beyond the bushes. It was as big as a house, Betty Jean Clem reported later. She said that it was mushroom-shaped, with a narrow base rising to an oval structure, and she could see lights on the back of the object. Tibbets, however, later told Patrolman Clark that it was triangular. A newspaper quoted him as saying it was shaped like a cake. Later, on a local radio program, he described it as being hexagonal, hollowed out in the center. They claimed that they saw it settle onto the beach about 150 yards in front of them. As it hit, it turned into a brilliant red, and their whole car vibrated and shook. They also said that they heard a loud humming or buzzing sound, like a telephone receiver makes. At some point, they also heard a scratching sound on the roof of their car, as if someone was walking on the roof. Later, Tibbets found a small dent and some scratching on the roof. As soon as the object settled, almost out of sight in front of them, it began to emit powerful rays of light. Shortly after the incident ended, Tibbets told officials in the administration building that he could not see the object after it landed, but he could see the light rays. These rays, narrow beams of white light, fanned out and seemed to rotate towards the woods along the beach. Tibbets said there were t between 9 and 12 of these light beams. The newspapers later quoted Tibbetts as saying there was only one beam of light, which moved along the ground in a straight line. It lit up the whole woods along its path. It was like a searchlight. Betty Jean Clem told the newspapers that the light did not waver back and forth like a searchlight, but continued to extend its beam into the woods. However, in his first interview, Tibbetts said that there were several light beams and that they moved like they were looking for something. Doug. Do you see it? Betty asked. He said, yes. We just couldn't believe it was really happening, she said later. The time was about 10.15 or 10.20 p.m. Patrolman Loban Clark drove into the area again, and according to Tibbetts, the light on the object went off immediately. Tibbetts flashed his brake lights, and the patrolman stopped. The 18-year-old jumped off his car and ran toward the police car. There's something weird going on here, he told the two officers. Loeb, Clark, and Tibbetts decided to walk up the beach to investigate, leaving the two women and the two children behind in the car. The windows of the car were closed, but the two side vents on the front windows were open. A few minutes after the three men had disappeared into the darkness, Betty Jean cried out to Anita, Don't look! There's something out there! Later, she told the police and reporters that a tall, upright figure had moved up to the car. She could not make out any features. It was just a tall, over six feet, creature. Only by leaning forward and looking upwards through the windshield could she determine it had a head. She could not see its legs. It was not, she insists, anything human, nor was it like any animal she had seen before. 
Whatever it was, it completely terrified her. She pressed her hand on the auto horn and held it there. The creature sluggishly moved away and disappeared into the darkness in the bushes. The three men were about a hundred yards away, walking along the beach, when the horn suddenly started blaring. They had been unable to see anything unusual ahead of them. There was no sign of any object or lights, Clark told me later. As soon as the horn started up, they turned and ran back toward the car. When they reached the car, Betty Jean leaped out of it, crying and screaming hysterically, and started to run away. Patrolman Clark caught her, and the men tried to calm her. Tibbetts later said he had known her for ten years, and he had never seen her act like that before. She was not a girl who frightened easily. Mrs. Hayfley remained calm through the entire incident. She did not see the alleged creature from her position in the back seat. Betty Jean's panic was contagious, and the men decided it would be prudent to leave the area and go to the administration building. They piled into the police car and drove off. When they drove up to the administration building and got out of the car carrying the two sleeping children, Officer Wilson at the dispatcher's desk watched in horror. His first thought, he said, upon seeing the hysterical girl and the two inert youngsters, was that they were dead, drowned. Flying saucer stories were not new to any of the officers. The local papers had carried a number of reports in recent weeks. Wilson immediately called Michael E. Wargo, the park superintendent who lived nearby, and the chief of the park police, Dan Descanio. Betty Jean was so frightened that she refused to sit with her back to her window. All of the men were impressed by the genuineness of Betty's hysteria. I know what people are going to say, Chief Descanio told reporters later, but this girl saw something that scared her badly. This is no joke so far as I'm concerned. The girl was still shaking when newsmen arrived, and her eyes were red from crying. Douglas Tibbetts was very excited and talkative. Chief Descanio ordered the entrance to the park closed, and put his men to work checking each car that passed through in either direction. The police files contain a list of everyone who entered or left the park after the incident. One car, containing Peter N. Fisher, 25, of Fort Edward, New York, and some friends, reported having seen an irregular-shaped object directly overhead sometime late in the evening. Descanio also called ATIC at Wright-Patterson and reported the incident. In spite of their great fright on the night of July 31st, both Betty Jean and Tibbetts returned to Presque Isle the following night and asked for permission to sit up on the beach until dawn. Tibbetts had heard somewhere that UFOs often returned to the same place for several days in succession. The police denied them permission. About 7 a.m. the next morning, patrolman Paul H. Wilson and J. Robert Canfield visited the al alleged landing site and discovered a series of markings on the sand. They found two triangular indentations about 18 inches long and sloping downwards to a depth of 8 inches. These prints were very distinct. Several feet away, they found three more identical impressions. They had no tape measure to check the actual distances. Two skid marks were also found in this pattern. They also discovered a series of imprints, 
conical-shaped as if someone had pressed a pointed drinking cup into the sand. These were 9 inches in diameter and 6 inches deep. They led from the landing site to about 12 feet from where the car was stuck. Officer Canfield photographed these markings with a Polaroid camera. They placed sticks around the triangular marks. The area was not cordoned off. In addition, they, they also found three spots of wet sand. The liquid was collarless, odorless, and sticky to the touch. All of the officers pointed out to me that most liquids, such as water, Coca-Cola, coffee, urine, etc., quickly evaporate on the beach. These wet spots persisted for a day. Samples of this substance were collected into plastic bottles. One officer told me that he collected some of this wet sand and had it analyzed privately. When dried, he said, this substance formed a collarless material which could be bent without breaking, like plastic. The analysis was performed by a relative who was a chemist, and it showed that the material was silicon. Wright Patterson ordered Major William S. Hall of the Youngstown Air Force Base to the site. One Corporal Howard A. Murray made plaster casts of the impressions in the sand, and then Major Hall quickly kicked over the traces, destroying the markings. He took possession of all of the bottles of the sand in the chief's possession and borrowed the photographs made by Officer Canfield. Major Hall quickly took charge, talking with newsmen and handling phone calls. He seemed to know what he was, exactly what he was doing, Descanio told me. But when local reporters asked him how many UFO sightings he had investigated, Hall replied, Let's say this is my first one. A Lieutenant William W. Morley of Project Blue Book at Wright-Patterson also spoke to park officials by telephone. Reporters spoke to Morley, and he assured them that the Air Force would study the case in detail. It was not true, he said that the Air Force would not release its final findings if the incident could not be explained as natural phenomena or hoax. His statements were played up in the local press. There are no bears or other large animals on the peninsula. Chief Descanio says that he specifically told the Air Force that there were no bears there. The final Air Force statement on the case declares that raccoons and bears are known in the woods in that area. The Air Force analysis of the wet sand claims that there was nothing unusual in the soil sample except urine. I interviewed all the police officers involved in the case. They all said that Betty Jean was genuinely frightened by something, and that Tibbetts was really excited. They all believe the story to be true. These officers are bright, mature, responsible men. Two of them are school teachers. The Presque Isle Police Force did a thorough job of documenting the incident and handled the entire situation in an exemplary manner. They were all extremely cooperative, though I was asked not to quote them directly and they would not allow me to tape my interviews with them. Curiosity seekers poured into Presque Isle for several days after the sightings, and then attendances fell off sharply. The editor of the Edinburgh PA Independent later told me, a lot of people are afraid to go there now. They think some kind of monster is on the loose. Oddly enough, Chief Descanio, Superintendent Wargo, and each police officer asked me separately if there have ever been any reports of kidnappings by UFOs. 
They all seemed to be interested in it, especially interested in this aspect, but would not tell me why. July 31st, night of Tibbet's clam sighting. At 10.30 p.m., a doctor reported seeing a circular patch of orange light, about the size of a baseball, traveling southwest at a high rate of speed. Estimated altitude, 500 to 1,000 feet. Viewing position places witness about one mile south of Presque Isle, near the coast of Lake Erie. Witness, Dr. Abbas Lubbus Erie Phone Also July 31st, 1 a.m. Oops, actually August 1st. Witness observed a bright light over Lake Erie for an hour and a half. Viewing position was a cottage at the foot of Cherry Street on Presque Isle Bay. Phone call to Park Police. Witness, Margaret Daniels. No address or phone number given. Three days after the Presque Isle incident, on August 3, 1966, an unusual creature was seen on the streets of Erie, Pennsylvania. The witness claims she was awakened at 5.30 a.m. by the barking of neighborhood dogs. She looked out of a window and saw what she described as a human-shaped being about 5 foot 6 inches tall. She is 5 foot 2 inches and said the creature was taller than she is. It was clothed in a yellow jacket and yellow trousers with no discernible pockets, belts, or other features. The head, she said, was huge and moon-shaped, and when seen from the side, the back of its head appeared to be flat. The head was covered with straggly brown hair, a muddy collar. The creature had very big shoulders and a slender build. It moved with a stiff, jerky, mechanical motion, holding its arms close to its sides. They did not move at all. Its legs did not bend at the knees. He moved, she said, like a mechanical wind-up toy. Local dogs were barking at its heels, but it ignored them. The sight of this creature frightened her, and she woke up her husband. He looked out the window, but, since he was not wearing his glasses, he said he only saw a movement. The creature appeared across from the United Oil storage tanks on West 3rd Street in Erie and walked stiffly out of view. She reported the incident to the police. I talked with her at length about this incident on the phone. She seems to be sincere and really concerned because nobody seems to believe her. She thought it may have come from a ship that docks nearby frequently and is, for some reason, mysterious to her. Another woman in the area saw a similar creature that same week, she told me. This woman, whose name she could not give me, says she was driving down 3rd Street late at night when she saw the creature and stopped her car. It came up to her car and pounded on the hood, then moved off into the darkness. To clarify the Blue Book report, the monster, as Keel stated, was said to have been an animal, while the markings on the sand were said to be unrelated to the event. The UFO itself is still listed as unexplained, however. I could find no report on the liquid, but I presume it may be considered as part of the markings. Just over two months before, at the end of May, a somewhat similar report, sans UFO, surfaced from Morristown, New Jersey. The write-up of this event, which appeared in Keel's Files, follows. Source, The Files of the Police Department, Morristown, New Jersey. Personal Interview with Sergeant Perillo, 
police and officer who originally interviewed the witnesses. I have not contacted the witnesses themselves. Main witnesses. Raymond Todd, age 21, Maplewood, New Jersey. Mary Ellen Misco, 16, Convent Station, New Jersey. Site of Incidents. Fort Nonsense Historical Park, Morristown, New Jersey. Morristown, New Jersey has a population of 17,712 and is located in a straight line about 30 miles south of the Wanakwe Reservoir, which has been the site of considerable UFO activity in 1966. UFOs have also been frequently seen over Patterson, Parsippany, and many other nearby communities. The Morristown National Historical Park is located on the highest hill in the area and commands a, whole, a view of the whole region. It is a wooded area and contains the remains of Fort Nonsense, a dummy fort erected during the Revolutionary War to bluff the British forces into thinking that the area was well defended, hence the name. There are no caves, swamps, or bodies of water within the park itself, but there is a series of small lakes on the other side of the town. No important industries, air bases, etc. are located in the area. The Incident Towards dusk on the evening of May 21, 1966, Raymond Todd and a group of friends, unnamed in the police report, were in the park when they saw a very tall being, at least seven feet, ambling across the lawn. It was faceless, covered with long black hair, and had scaly skin. What impressed them the most was the breadth of the creature. It had huge shoulders, they said, and walked erect with a stiff, rocking movement. They were absolutely certain that it was not a bear or another known creature. The witnesses became hysterical and drove to the entrance to the park, where they stopped cars and warned people there was a monster on the loose. Todd stopped a car driven by Mary Ellen Misco and had her take him to the Morristown Municipal Hall, where the police station is located. There he excitedly demanded that the police do something. Call out the National Guard, he cried. The police dutifully recorded his story and calmed him. They did not take his tale seriously, however, even though they thought his fear and hysteria was genuine. As a curious coincidence, Miss Misco backed Todd's story by relating how she and three others had seen a, seen a similar monster in the same area about a year ago. She said that she and her friends were parked in the dark near Fort Nonsense. The area is a popular lover's lane. When they heard a loud thumping on the back of the car, they looked at the rear window and saw a huge form standing over the car. It was very tall and had very broad shoulders. They could not see its head. They drove away in a state of panic, but did not report the episode to the authorities. Miss Misko's mother urged her to not mention the incident to anyone and asked that the girls not be used. Comments. Here again we have the now familiar pattern. Tall hairy beings approaching automobiles. A similar being appeared in Fontana, California in July 1966, approaching an auto containing two young girls. Another tall unidentified walking object terrified a 16-year-old girl in a parked car on Presque Isle, Pennsylvania, July 31, 1966 shortly after four witnesses observed a UFO landing. And that's the end of this episode. 
If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page. Post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off.